whatever happens. Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm at St. Chad's, a bar in King's Cross, in the exquisitely awful King's Cross, that is becoming vaguely bourgeois. It's a very trendy bar. And I'm here with Dave O'Brien, known to his close friends as Dr. Dave rather than <laughs> Dave, who is the author of a new book. And I'm hoping we can learn a little bit about this book. Dave is also a professor at City University here in London. Dave, share with the group the title, the publisher, the scam. Yeah. And, and who did it? Who done it? Who done it, right? Who done it? Like, who, at the end? At the end. Well, no, that would ruin the book, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. If, if I give away the kind of the payoff is it's modernity and capitalism. Modernity but... mudge capitalism or the <laughs> yeah. other way around? Well, it's a bit of both, though. Bit of both. Mutual conspiracy. <laughs> um, so thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, so as Toby says, I've just written this book called Cultural Policy, uh, Management, Value and Modernity in the Creative Industries, which is a terrible long title. Oh, and, and is there a colon in there? As, there is a as colon. the proctologist said there to is, the middle-aged man. There is. There's, there's just the one colon in there, which is, which is normal, I think. Where? Uh, um, <laughs> after cultural policy. So cultural policy, polyp. Yeah. And so on and so forth. And I think that reflects um, the publisher, Routledge, who... <laughs> who are absolutely lovely, but their desire to kind of speak to lots of different markets about things like creative industries, and then my desire to write a book that was really to do with things like modernity, you know, kind of sociological questions as much as they were to do with kind of cultural policy questions. Um, and yeah, it came out last November. November 2013. Yeah. Um, and apparently there should be some paperback copies due out in April of 2014, so April of this year, a great Easter uh, gift for, <laughs> right. for, the, for the you know Christian Western community. So the Bundy, the Bunny Modernity, <laughs> exactly. Bunny Modernity, yeah. and so Dave O'Brien feasting on Easter eggs or providing Easter eggs for others to feast on. I think you'd be really disappointed if you got this instead of an Easter egg. Huh? Is it a vegan book? Can I? Uh, eat it? Is it safe for children? It's Does it come uh, in many colours. It's probably recycled. Probably. <laughs> So, all that aside, perhaps you could explore for us in slightly greater depth this interesting question you raise of the publisher's marketing desires versus the way you wanted things to be and how those things, thank you, Paul, how those things fit together and don't fit together. Uh, yeah, sure. So, thanks. thanks well, what much. the differences are between them, I'm well, sure you've seamlessly stitched them. Well, I think what's interesting, and again, I must say, you know, Routledge um, had been really good. Uh, this is the first book I've written. Uh, they were really good to work with. They were very supportive. Um, I should mention the fact that there's a kind of secret cabal of Liverpool fans that run bits of Routledge. So, you know, I got on very well with them. A kind of a, a, you know, a footballing version of the old school tie, as it were. But hmm. okay. in, in many ways, they took a bit of a risk uh, in publishing the book because I'd not written the book before. And it wasn't a book that was based directly on um, a PhD thesis. And I didn't have to send them a completed manuscript before they gave me the contract. Mm. So what's mm. more usual with academic publishing for individuals' first books tend to be, you know, for a start, we'd like to see the full completed manuscript. We'd also like to, you know, see that it's been based on, um, you know, rigorous, long-standing research, etc., etc. So, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. You probably know a lot more about academic publishing than I do. So they were good in that respect, but it was also clear that 
in the UK at least, um, cultural policy as an area has been something that's kind of emerged um, to be a very popular subject of study, particularly at postgrad level, um, over the last sort of 10 years or so. And what's happened is as arts administration courses um, have become less popular um, and more students have become interested in getting involved in things that are known as the creative industries, this kind of space has been filled by cultural policy. And there are various courses that cross over with things like music management, event management, um, old arts administration departments, heritage, uh, museum studies, these kind of things. And I think Routledge had seen that there was, you know, a potentially quite a big market for a book that spoke um, across these different subject areas. Um, but I was really keen not to write a textbook, and I think they were quite keen to publish a textbook. So it's interesting um, the kind of discussions we had with them, really encouraging me to be kind of scholarly and rigorous, but also them being really keen that uh, it would sell. Mm. Okay. Okay. And let's go through these words, if we can. There are so many loaded <laughs> adjectives and nouns. So I guess management um, is, strictly speaking, it's not a book about management as you find in a kind of uh, mainstream management school or organization studies department. It's really, it's interactions with management are very sort of sociological and very policy based. So the management there is talking about things like uh, new public management, which uh, is something that hit the States and uh, the UK in the 1980s, which was, you know, the kind of contracting out of public services to private organisations, the belief that markets were more efficient in the state at providing particular goods and services. Um, sort of, um, challenges from uh, broadly kind of right-wing economists that suggested that state organisations and individuals were all kind of in it for themselves and had to make money and, and this sort of thing. So, Sort of a Robert Nozick, Manker Olson influence mm. on the theory and practice of these things along with an attempt to deal with the descent into a temporary abyss of Keynesianism yeah. in the light of the oil shocks yeah. and the decline in manufacturing in much of the global north. But interestingly, and this, I devote like one reference to this in the book, but that whole tradition uh, is also influenced by, you know, a sort of, a specific project by a group of intellectuals, the Monty Parliament Society, people associated with, you know, institutions like uh, the LSE and Chicago. Uh, London School of Economics and Political Science. Yeah, in, in London and then uh, University of Chicago in, or was it Chicago University? I never remember. But in Chicago. University of Chicago. In the States. Um, and in some ways, these kind of, intellectual critiques uh, were quite useful. It's probably fair to say that uh, the management of state services in, say, the 1950s and 1960s in the UK was perhaps overly bureaucratic. There are a series of sort of state scandals, particularly around areas of things like social work, that suggested they weren't responsive to citizens' needs. They weren't particularly interested in the kind of, you know, desires of specific citizens. And they had very, you know normative assumptions about what was the right kind of citizen and the right kind of behaviour. The extent to which markets are better 
um, kind of dealing with these uh, sort of state services such as educational health. I mean, that's highly disputable. But there was certainly a kind of a, a kernel of, of truth in some of the intellectual critiques uh, that underpin new public management. And so that's one of the starting points for the book about what does this kind of change in British state and society mean for culture? So previously in the UK, uh, and indeed in Western Europe in a way that's kind of uh, Western Europe is dealing with, at the moment, uh, organisations would get possibly the bulk of their income from the state in the form of grants or subsidies to provide particular cultural goods and services that would have been considered kind of, you know, civilising, enlightening, uplifting, this sort mm. of thing. Um, and again, that had particular assumptions about what was good culture, what was appropriate for people, where that culture should take place, for example, in uh, specific kind of organisation settings like the Opera House or the museum, um, and with, you know, again, very sort of normative views about uh, the right kind of citizens who should be going to these places and, and sort of enjoying them and benefiting from them. So the management aspect is that kind of what happens when culture is on the receiving end of similar critiques uh, as other public services had had um, in the 1980s and into the 1990s. And there's a chapter in the book where I try and track what's happened um, in terms of organisational responses uh, to these trends by looking at the Arts Council, which is the kind of organisation that gives out state funding uh, to cultural organisations in the UK, uh, to the BBC, uh, and to an organisation called the Heritage Lottery Fund, which kind of deals with heritage projects based on the UK's lottery or lotto uh, taxes. The value and modernity are sort of more and less complicated. Uh, value is something that I'm very interested in, in terms of how do we value things, how do we make decisions about them, how do we make judgments about them, and that's connected to um, the kind of political situation um, in the post-new public management era, whereby uh, what's happened with um, the kind of economic end of new public management is that government has been asked to account for itself in its spending in terms of the cost of things and the benefits uh, that people will get back from them. And this raises questions about what we value, how do we value things that maybe can't be costed, or the benefits of things that aren't known in strictly financial terms. But it also raises questions about what kind of assumptions are in um, these sorts of um, management mechanisms like cost-benefit analysis or particular forms of accounting. The modernity is something that I think uh, is a way of kind of saying this isn't just a party political or a kind of left-right political split. It's not just uh, a kind of right-wing conspiracy or a neoliberal assault on the state, but rather um, there's something about the kind of era we live in and the kind of condition we live in, certainly in the UK, possibly in Western Europe, and to an extent in other parts of the globe, that means that we are kind of suspicious um, of particular dominant narratives. We question uh, the way kind of, you know, maybe government functions in terms of, you know, um, forcing particular outcomes or practices onto specific social, cultural uh, groups and you know the kind of distrust of, of expertise as well means that we seek certainty in particular forms of 
science and social science that are the same kinds of forms of science and social science that seems to have been popular with these kind of right-wing management uh, practices. So that's how the three things connect together. But also they were like the modernity stuff and the kind of distrust of expertise and stuff raises questions about identity uh, and culture's relationship to identity. So there's a chapter about how people engage and participate and also questions about kind of uh, work and working practices, which you know leads on to how organisations manage, but also connects back to what kind of identities exist around culture. And of course, one of the ironies of this period is that, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, it's the time when the idea of the universal subject as the practitioner or recipient of art is problematized, both in terms of the distinction between the subject and the audience, and also in terms of democratic access as defined through all the prisms of sociology, social class. Yeah, oh, very much so. And what, what's interesting about my attempt to kind of use modernity um, as a sort of overarching concept in the book is the way that... I'm glad there's something interesting in the book. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, that'd be something. I mean, he won't tell us who, who done it, but he's going to tell us something interesting. Look out. Stop Watch it. out. Be ready. Don't, don't look so bored when I'm telling you about the book. No, it's know. not boring. It's incredibly um, interesting. But, but yeah, that kind of figure yeah. um, of modernity is important because mm -hmm. it, it's one of these ideas that cuts both ways. Yeah. So on the one hand... We've lost, you know, say we, but certainly in British society. And I hate to be so parochial, but it is a very kind of Anglo-centric book, you know. So, it's I mean, about the UK, principally. Well, yeah, and actually to sort of make a point about that, I think one of the problems that we've had in um, discussions of things like creative industries has been a lack of sort of really nationally specific um, engagements and I know people have written quite good comparative papers Andrew Ross wrote quite a good one about the ideas of creative industries and how they they don't work in America but how they do work in parts of Southeast Asia and Australia this kind of thing but I do think there's something to be said for kind of you know, almost sort of singular or parochial types of analysis mm. you know which set up comparisons but you need to do the, the legwork first but yeah sorry um, so to get back to this splitting yes. of the subject, the yeah. universal subject, so, do you think that is, you know, so therefore claims in terms of gender and sexuality yeah, yeah. and race and class, well, well, do you think that relates to this neoliberal well, redefinition? Partially, I mean, these things cut both ways, and, and this, this is actually a big question for uh, the political left um, yeah. at, at the moment. Don't, don't sigh when I say the political left, but there is an issue in the sense that... Um, Previously, cultural organisations tended not to be responsive to, say, uh, the interests of um, particular ethnic groups or uh, particular gendered groups or indeed, you know, particular classes. Um, the kind of the long tradition, uh, which is a very venerable tradition of, say, museums in the UK about, you know, kind of civilising the working class, providing, a, you know, an alternative to the pub and to, you know, drunkenness. National recreation and so on. Yeah, Exactly does assume that, you know, there was nothing of value in the public house, you know, that somehow cultures that working class individuals would have, you know, were meaningless and worthless compared to the contemplation of the Western canon in visual arts or in, uh, you know, stolen artefacts or, or whatever. Uh, so on the one hand, you know, these can be seen as oppressive 
institutions, but also, on the other hand, the kind of the rejection of them or the throwing out of them has left us with a problem that we all seem to be equal, but only equal in the market. And that isn't equality. It's a, you know, a differentiation by how much money you've got or, you know, how good your social network is or access to particular resources. So you're right to identify the kind of, I suppose, that what some sociologists call kind of liquid or reflexive um, modernity or late capitalism or network society or whatever. But there is something about this kind of ambivalence um, and sort of ambiguous era whereby even the kind of positives in terms of overthrowing of, uh, you know, institutional constraints or repressive forms of identity, um, which you know, might be related to kind of gender identities or sexual identities uh, or identities of ethnicity, do mean that you know you're kind of charged with well, do it yourself, you know, and do it yourself perhaps through consumption. And if you can't afford consumption, then you fail to do it yourself. You fail to have an identity. You know, you somehow failed as a citizen and failed as a subject. Pretty grim, that isn't it? It's, it's quite sort of depressing. In the pod in the Northern Summer, Deborah Phillips and Gary Wall mm. spoke about their work on cultural policy, half, I guess, on arts, half on sports. In a sense, I guess, under Tony Blair, but deriving from some of these inspirations that you've described. There sounds like it's quite a different book from yours. Yeah. I have read both of them. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to. I, I find unusual, probably. I mean, I'm familiar with their work. It's really interesting because I think their critique, um, particularly of you know the idea of sort of business sponsorship as being a Trojan horse for sort of neoliberal activity, is, is interesting. But I think it, it sort of misses the, uh, I guess, the kind of both the ambivalences and I suppose the sort of um, potential benevolences um, of business. Like I, I have a sort of a problem with analysis that suggests that all forms of market exchange are out to shaft somebody. Like I, I do think, you know, that sort of the liberal economic tradition of saying, you know, well, if two people kind of, you know, have a market exchange, maybe they both benefit. There is something in that. They quite like £20 notes. Have Adam Smith on one side. Well, obviously, you know, when we see this, you know, how this kind of uh, pure idea of market exchange manifests itself, it's dominated by corporate power. You know, there are particular monopolistic interests, you know, for example, and, you know, Deborah and Gary are totally correct to identify this. You know, the Tate isn't sponsored by UNICEF or Amnesty or something. They're, you know, they're in bed with BP um, and were previously in bed with, you know, kind of um, BT, Monopoly, Telecoms yeah. operator, you know, this kind of thing. So these are not, you know, these are not the kind of benevolent business organisations that we'd like to see. But I think kind of damning all forms of commercial sponsorship or, you know, sponsorship, uh, partnerships is, is problematic I think and you know again we can think in terms of like sports sponsorship broadly speaking you know sports sponsorship has done terribly offensive things 
to sport in terms of its commercialisation. I'm thinking primarily in terms of football, but also things like cricket um, to a lesser extent, rugby, and you know events such as the Olympic Games, which are clearly more interested in sponsorship than any vague association with the Olympian ideal. That said, if you watch, say, football coverage now compared to football coverage 30 years ago, it's immeasurably better. Um, and that's not just because of technology, it's because of being responsive to the audience, because of certain commercial pressures that say pay more attention to the audience than to the idea of they should get what they're given. Which Manuel Castell uh, is talking about this with things like sort of Latin American soap operas as being, you know, a, a bit of a Trojan horse of getting progressive agendas out into society because effectively if you don't respond to some of the things the audience wants in terms of, say, you know, being working mums or whatever, then they won't watch you and they won't be interested. You won't get advertising revenue. You're unconvinced by that. You've got that... You have a sceptical look on your face. So, can we get back to a couple of other words that you use in the title, the adjectives, cultural and creative, and you've referred already this evening to cultural policy and creative industries. Now again, these are terms that we've looked at before in the pod. Oh, I think there's a couch available over there. Do you want to do a runner? Yeah, go on. Yeah, let's, let's do a bit of a runner. Oh, maybe we can't. No. We've been beat. Can't we? Can't we beat too well? They haven't gone. Are they young? Oh, it's hard to tell. The guy's putting his jacket on. Yeah, go on. All right. I think we may be able to move over it's going to take me a little longer than you. Yeah, you be an advanced guard. Uh, it looks as though Dave has managed to secure a spot on a couch which will be very, very comfy for us and where we can be deeply cultural and creative together. Thank you, sir. So, Dave, well done securing this little spot, and thanks to this gentleman for letting us sit down here. Um, you know, it's more comfortable, it's warmer, it's next to the heater, it's a lot of good things. So, it was a live moment, yep, we went live. It was as if Brian Moore and Barry Davies and David Coleman were basically saying, you can't move the goalposts, but you can move the microphones. These are former British television sportscasters, two of whom sadly died in recent years, one of whom is still going. <laughs> in any event, this question of cultural and creative, cultural policy and creative industries, sometimes I feel as though these terms are used interchangeably. Sometimes I feel as though they refer to distinctly different things. Yeah. How do you use them? Uh, unfortunately, I on occasion we use them interchangeably, okay. um, yeah. which is you know, quite embarrassed as you pointed that out. But I think the distinction, I suppose, in my head is to do with cultural policy tends to be synonymous with arts policy or bits of media policy. Creative industries, um, I think, needs to be used in a more sort of technical sense to describe a very specific agenda that is a kind of British, Australian, and now Southeast Asian instruction about a very specific kind um, of, I guess, kind of labour and work in a very narrow range of sectors of the economy. 
economy, which include things that, in the British model at least, could not in any way be considered artistic or cultural. So, most specifically, a kind of good example which um, has been subject to recent debates is um, sort of software support systems, database design, um, computer consultancy, these kinds of things, which includes an element of coding, which you know is a creative activity, but also is the kind of thing where you get software engineers, you know, dealing with problems within NHS or National Health Service, yeah, sorry, uh, organizational databases, and you know, consulting on new computer systems for firms and this kind of thing, which again is creative, but it's only creative in the way that, say, you know, designing a car is creative, which is only creative in the way that maybe. Gardening is creative and is only creative in a way that maybe working in finance is creative. So it inflates the value of these things yeah. monumentally. Well, it dilutes and inflates. So yeah. certainly in yeah. kind of British governmental discourses, one of the reasons that this term creative industries was so successful and was able to go global were claims about the kind of new economy that might emerge based on supposedly creative activity, which conflated you know, the kind of cool, hip, probably not said hip, but like the kind of idea that we could be musicians or actors uh, or painters with the reality of growth sections of the economy being things like database design. Information technology. Yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah. And, and again, this, you know, this has been written about extensively, this kind of inflation and this inflation being useful for policy makers. So I think... Um, although, yeah, on occasion I use them interchangeably, I think it's worth drawing the distinction between the idea that we might have policies about culture, which you know include things like arts, media, but also then get into questions about uh, particular forms of representation, ethnic identity, heritage, these kind of things. And then we have creative industries, which is a very specific uh, product of policy, and isn't really a policy about anything, it's rather a kind of a product of policies. Which periods does your book cover? So it, it does kind of two things. It starts uh, really with a bit of an overview of um, <laughs> cultural policy in the UK since uh, 1945, because this is a crucial period as the Arts Council model, uh, kind of having a, an organisation slightly separate from but still related to the state. And chaired by Keynes himself? Uh, no. No? I, I, he died before Ace got going. Um, he I died in 46. 46. I think he might have chaired uh, some meetings. Or something. Yeah, the, and the precursor to it was this um, oh, committee for something or other, okay. which you know was bound up with kind of education and the arts. Okay. Um, I think he might he might have died before the Arts Council got formally established. Yeah, I might be wrong about that. So you know. It's one for the listeners to check themselves and write in with, with complaints. Um, so, uh, so, with the prize going to the neatest correct entrance, yes. as the actress definitely said to the bishop. <laughs> very good. Um, so, yeah, I kind of cover uh, a very brief historical overview, but also really I'm talking about um, across the rest of the, the last sort of 20 years or so. The last 20 years? Well, uh, well, the last 30, since the 1980s, so the last 30 years or so. And We've now had almost four years of the first major coalition government in a couple of generations in Britain. How would you characterise their cultural policy and their creative industries policy? 
okay, so they don't really have a cultural policy. What they have is a policy for um, intervening into a particular debate about Britain's debt and Britain's deficit. So uh, they've conflated these ideas of the national debt with uh, the kind of the difference between what they're raising taxes and what they have to spend every year. And um, this has been the dominant um, kind of idea across uh, Westminster and Whitehall. So you know, across sort of politics and public administration in Britain under the coalition. What's this has meant for cultural policy has been that. Uh, they haven't really had a kind of strong cultural minister since they came to power. Hmm. Uh, and as a result of this, they haven't had anyone who's had an agenda beyond the idea that sort of dealing with the deficits, which they conflate with the national debt and the go back and forth between the two terms, is the only thing that cultural policy should be there to do. So although the Ministry of Culture was interested in uh, promoting and putting on the Olympics in 2012, and dealing with things like local television stations, promoting rural broadband. Um, in cultural terms, there's been a bit of a policy vacuum. And the current minister has made a couple of speeches. She made one last year. So is this Maria Miller? Maria Miller, yes. Uh, she made one last year which basically suggested that the cultural sector should be thought of in terms of its economic uh, contribution to growth in the UK, which I actually... I have a lot of time for that position for various reasons. And then she gave another speech recently, uh, sort of a week or so ago, which was basically an argument that you all misunderstood my last speech. I really love arts and culture. Please do contribute to growth, but don't forget that the government loves you, which was a bit... Don't forget that the government loves you, you know, which was a bit sort of empty considering there haven't been any policies. They're only kind of dominant, certainly cultural and artistic, uh, idea is that the arts will have to have less money in the state. They might get more money from business sponsorship and philanthropy, but that's something for other bodies to be bothered about. Really, the arts should just have less money for the state, because the state needs to spend less money, and that, that's about it. In terms of creative industries, there's been an interesting, and I use the term interesting loosely because it's actually very boring, and very sort you know, kind of... British Public Administration Centre. Cue listeners showing massive interest, ears pricking up. Oh yeah, very much so, very uh, I'm sure globally people are desperate to know the differences between the Department for Business Innovation Skills and the Department for Culture, Media and Sport within the British states, but there have been interesting kind of contrasting approaches towards creative industries in the, the Ministry of Culture, which sort of has responsibility for creative industries, has been uh, involved in a kind of rethink of what creative industries are and how they're defined, how they're measured, uh, and how they're kind of narrated, uh, which has resulted in some interesting economic figures that were released uh, last month, uh, suggesting that they're growing uh, at higher levels than the rest of the UK economy is growing. But they haven't really had any kind of you know, major policies other than these kind of rural broadband discussions. The Ministry of, I'm trying to think what an American or European equivalent would be, like the Ministry of Labour or something, you know, the kind of Ministry for Business, has not been especially interested in creative industries because they've been more interested in kind of biotechnology, agribusiness, um, more formal types of knowledge economy, and of course, um, oh, what's this, the euphemism for arms dealing? 
you know, um, I can never remember it. So, you know, it's not defence systems, but you know, it's, it's something like defence procurement. Uh, yeah, something or like that. Material. Is the other wonderful word. I can never remember, but it's that kind of you know. But when you look into the facts of figures, what they mean is you know, guns and arms that can be sold to inappropriate regimes. But um, they've not been especially interesting in creative industries. So at the moment, there have been kind of you know minor things like encouraging broadband or uh, you know particular speeches by the uh, Minister of the Arts, who in theory is kind of, this is a guy called Ed who in theory works jointly with the Ministry for Business, but really there haven't been any kind of major developments in the way that uh, under the Labour Party from 1997 uh, onwards, creative industries were both kind of defined, uh, given prominence, um, really brought into being, and then supported in a variety of different ways. Can you explain to listeners outside the UK the concept of the great and the good and the concept of the loving? It's maybe quite relevant here uh, when it comes to who gets to speak on behalf of the arts and who gets picked out by the Labour Party versus derided or ignored by the Tories. Yeah. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book actually uh, is this kind of dual question of who is involved in culture and then who produces culture. So a kind of like who consumes and who produces, uh, which are kind of two central chapters in the book, which I think are probably the most interesting chapters as well. On the one hand, all of the kind of sociological evidence suggests that if you're well-educated, uh, broadly kind of uh, middle class, uh, and then um, have particular demographic characteristics around you know, your gender and your ethnicity, you're much more likely to consume uh, state-funded or state-sponsored or state-subsidised forms of culture. So, broadly speaking, people who are going to kind of uh, state-supported culture tend to be older, white, middle-class. Uh, gender is an important kind of uh, differential category. Uh, in there, in the kind of men are seen to be kind of much more interested in doing kind of like outwardly facing activities such as you know going to sort of sporting events, involving a lot of shouting. Women tend to like doing kind of more slightly inward looking or introspective or self sort of reflexive uh, activities that might be uh, you know involving particular theatre or reading or stuff like this. This is the research, these aren't my opinions. <laughs> um, and so the sort of dominant narrative that comes from the state in terms of culture is around uh, a particular uh, white and middle class and crucially well-educated vision of what culture equates to. So, you know, kind of local uh, cultural activities that maybe to do with, you know, expressions of uh, senses of identity tend not to be funded, tend not to be captured uh, by state organisations and thus tend to be underrepresented in debates. At the same time, what's happened uh, across British society uh, in terms of uh, fashion, so things like accountancy, medicine, uh, these sorts of things, uh, and also in the cultural sector, is that the expansion of professional society that went on uh, after the 1950s and 1960s in the UK has stopped, and so the roots in for non-middle-class, well-educated individuals have effectively been shut down. Uh, so the cultural sector now is increasingly reflecting those who have the resources to uh, end, sort of compete 
and put up with the struggles of entering the commercial sector mm. in terms of things like unpaid internships, having to work and live in London on no money in you know one of the great sort of housing crisis expensive cities in the world, having the right sort of social connections that will get you one of these unpaid internships, etc., etc., etc. So whilst uh, cultural consumption is characterised, or at least state-sponsored or state-funded cultural consumption is characterised by higher levels of education and higher class status, um, cultural production is now characterised in similar ways because it's just very difficult if your parents don't have money to support you or if you've been to the wrong school or if you've been to the wrong university to break into things like television production advertising or all these kind of things. In a way, actually, that interestingly, 30 years ago, wasn't the same. So things like journalism, uh, advertising, uh, these kinds of, I suppose, important creative industries, but also industries that crossed over with the creative industries, such as journalism and terms of like writing books or these kind of things, were more open to that route of sort of going to school, getting a kind of a first job on a regional paper or in you know an advertising agency uh, and then rising to prominence at the same time as that rise to prominence being something that was disconnected from uh, sort of the greater the good forms of culture in terms of you know um, western theatre the opera contemporary dance or all this kind of thing so a lot of the sociological work on uh, the kind of middle classes who aren't especially well educated in formal terms like not having master's degrees etc suggests that they can be quite low consumers of state sponsored culture because you know they're just not interested it doesn't mean anything to them uh, but increasingly what we'll see is that that sort of middle class individual will find it harder to kind of rise to that social position and it's certainly unlikely that that similar sort of social position will be reflected in um, contemporary culture production. So I haven't really explained what movies or the great and the good are, but I've talked a lot about stuff that's related to that. Sure, the great and the good refers to a British tradition of selecting people who are experts in different fields who often have a degree of independence from the political process, not necessarily 100% autonomy, and who are deemed to be of sufficient stature and decency, as well as expertise, to be good inquirers into certain problems. Whereas the loving is a specifically theatrical style term about the person possibly involved in the cultural sector probably, as a producer or as such in the past, who is also directly articulated or has been to the Labour Party in most instances. Uh, whereas in the first case of The Great and the Good, Richard Hoggart would be a classic example from the moment he was on the Pilkington Committee into the future of broadcasting in the early 60s through to his time as a culture crat at UNESCO in uh, the continent. Did you call him a culture crat? Yeah. <laughs> And an example of a second would be Richard Attenborough, from his time as a movie actor and director and impresario, to his being a champagne socialist in a chauffeur-driven role. What's interesting, I suppose, might be the, the shift in language around that. So, 
Um, I mean, you're totally right to identify the uh, the important links between the Labour Party uh, and the emergence of particular cultural policy discourses. So, creative industries um, is sort of saturated uh, in its kind of late 1990s, early 2000s formation by uh, former sort of film directors or advertisers who ended up um, being culture crafts or yeah, heads of clangos or quasi-autonomous non-government organisations. But, but also what, what's interesting might be the sort of generational shift in terms of those terms, I guess, kind of lobbying is still around as a pejorative term, but um, we'd really more think, I guess, with the kind of bloggers, etc., as the kind of the commentariat would be the kind of broader term for, you know, individuals who are crossing over between things like, you know, having a sort of blog that gets picked up or syndicated um, in a national newspaper um, or is, you know, in one of the kind of um, important political magazines and then is asked to speak on things like Question Time, uh, which is a kind of political uh, panel discussion show in the UK. On television. On television. And then is given, you know, prominence in terms of uh, shaping debates. So, you know, two examples could be uh, it's a historian, uh, David Starkey, who uh, is very well known for um, his very odious right-wing opinions. He's not odious, his opinions are that's not suable, is it? Or calling someone's opinions odious. And then, you know, other people like Laurie Penny, Owen Jones, on the left, you know, kind of, uh, they don't have specifically sort of academic backgrounds, Stark is a professor of history, but they've, you know, had sort of similar problems in terms of going between kind of peripheral organisations called political parties, you know, blogging, writing, and then having, you know, kind of all commentating positions. And it's interesting that, you know, there's still, uh, I guess, a set of great and good in terms of, uh, in Britain this week, there's been a political scandal about a former advisor to the Labour government being sacked from a job running an organisation that inspects schools. But increasingly, the kind of... A person who, during the debate, showed that she did not know the difference between to mitigate and to militate, <laughs> one of which is a transitive verb, one of which is intransitive, and which have completely different meanings. Was this the Radio 4 thing? Or? I, it was something I read that oh, she right. said. So She said that something was mitigating against something else. She may have been misquoted, but I wouldn't want the educational body she runs to be looking too closely at her command of England. Well, that kind of thing is a sackable offence under the, uh, the current educational regime in the UK. So, But yeah, I think there's an interesting generational shift to be, I suppose, monitored in the UK. And, uh, you know, as you've identified, particularly around the Labour Party where, um, and this is a sort of book I'm trying to develop at the moment, where that kind of, yeah, that sense of someone being the right kind of chap, and it usually was a chap, yeah. um, you know, to be trusted with, you know, making decisions and running particular things has given way to a kind of much more sort of technocratic expertise whereby someone would have worked on a think tank and then, you know, maybe uh, been uh, an assistant working for a union and then ended up, you know, having a national newspaper column and so on and so forth. But they usually end up as MPs. Member of Parliament. Uh, now, Dave, before we get on to your next project, can you tell us what the Labour Party is doing now in opposition? Uh, bits and bobs. It, 
it's been an interesting time for the Labour Party because um, one of the quirks of the British electoral system means that you can take kind of shattering uh, defeats that, you know, in theory should wipe out your party completely and yet still be returned with a very kind of large uh, minority uh, in the uh, House of Commons, which is the Parliament uh, in the UK. And what's been interesting is the Labour Party has been trying to develop uh, a response to both the fact that they got um, very... They, had, they got a bit of a kicking from the electorate, basically. In 2010. 2010. But also uh, trying to be aware that one of the quirks of the British electoral system also means that uh, they can't campaign nationally to attract a range of kind of uh, national uh, support. They have to campaign very specifically in areas of the country that have, uh, you know, really kind of. Um, narrow focus, particularly uh, amongst sort of slightly older, middle-class uh, people who tend to vote. So they've done, uh, in a sense, a community organising thing that's modelled on the Obama history well, and campaign? They've been saying this and they brought over... A, they've hired a lot of yeah, community yeah, organisers. they brought over the, kind of, uh, the Obama organisers. As did the Tories. Tories have also got Obama advisors, haven't they? But, but, yeah. I mean, the, the extent to which uh, this will be successful, uh, I suppose, is it's slightly problematic in the sense that there are definitely some things that do carry over uh, from US politics um, around community organisation. So the experience of the Liberal Democrats, who are the kind of minority partner in the coalition, was that getting a base at local level, developing uh, local links, getting local councillors elected was likely to translate into members of parliament over a period of time. The extent to which you can kind of galvanise, I suppose, a coalition of support, particularly from young people, in the right constituencies that will win you seats, that will get you into government uh, in the UK, I think is much more open to debate. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how they fare with this, predominantly because levels of youth voting are uh, comparatively very low when you look at the levels of voting by sort of over 50s and crucially actually over 60s and over 70s. Um, at the same time, Labour has been involved in various sort of policy reviews which have attempted to kind of stake out um, how they would deal with what is clearly a failing economic model in the UK, the dependence on financial services uh, and the kind of City of London to provide tax revenues at the same time as British manufacturing, which is actually doing quite well in certain parts of the country, being ignored by the state uh, and, you know, being out of favour by the state, clearly has to change. That was, you know, the kind of disastrous um, set of policies that actually, you know, the kind of Labour government with 1907 to 2010 had, but before that, the had as well. And... These policy reviews have not put up with all that much so far. Uh, we'll see, you know, Ed Miliband has made a, who is the leader of the Labour Party, has made a series of quite interesting speeches about, you know, predatory capitalism, about kind of rebalancing the economy uh, in a different way to uh, the kind of the current coalition government's version of rebalancing the economy. But I think it would be. 
think you'd have to be a, a keener supporter of the Labour Party than I am to say they've got concrete policies and they know what they're doing. What about in terms of the cultural and creative spheres? Yeah. This has been very interesting, actually, because uh, they're now onto their third um, shadow culture minister. The first one was quite encouraging, although he'd come from an international development background. So who was the, I don't even uh, know the names so of these people. So that was Ivan Lewis. Oh. Uh, there was someone else after him. And now, uh, I think it's Harriet Harman. Is it? Uh, but, you know, Who is the deputy leader of the Labour Party? Yes, I checked that as well. It's either... This This will make me sound like a monstrous sexist, but it's either Harriet Harman or Tessa Jowell. Maybe it's... No, it's well, Tessa Jowell. Harriet Harman is the deputy leader of the Labour yeah. Party. Uh, but uh, one of them is standing down. Oh, this is all... Tess, Tessa Jowell was the minister with responsibility for the, the Olympics, Olympics yeah. before the Labour Party lost the election. Yes. Uh, and she might have taken over. But in my defence, this sort of shows you the prominence of the cultural agenda in the Labour Party at the moment. Right. I'm not entirely sure who their shadow minister for culture is. Yeah. Uh, and at least to my knowledge, they, they haven't made any kind of big statements. They, you know, they've suggested that Maria Miller's work has been satisfactory. And, you know, certainly they, uh, Dan Jarvis, who was the kind of shadow arts minister, was the sort of junior version yeah. of the Ministry of Culture had made some interesting points about you know the kind of the impact on both central governments and local government cuts in arts funding but at least publicly I mean you might be better connected than I am but at least in public discourses there hasn't been the sort of the great intellectual say intellectual certainly the great moment that there was in the mid-90s of developing an agenda around a cultural policy that spoke to the kind of new lens uh, that grew out of the Labour Party in the 80s at the same time speaking to a new version of the British economy dependent on creative uh, industries as a kind of drive for what's going to happen next so not much would be a sort of summary yeah, of the Labour interesting. Party now, what about this next project? Can you share a little bit of it with us? Oh, yeah. So, um, I put a book proposal forward uh, to, uh, to someone who isn't Ramage. I'm sure they'll forgive me. Um, to try and understand uh, how the British state has changed uh, and functions through uh, the identity of civil servants and sort of uh, mechanisms they have for making decisions. Um, I'm also involved in various kind of other bits of research that might come to fruition, uh, not this year but next year. But for the moment, my kind of interest is uh, to extend some of these ideas about modernity, yeah. about ambivalence, and about you know the changes in identity, the closure of professions to anyone other than the existing middle class, um, and actually yeah, the decline of the kind of the right sort of chat, the decline of the kind of gentlemanly amateur and how this plays out in the way the government is increasingly dominated by you know people who are trained as economists who are trained in MAs in public policy that are effectively economics degrees that uh, is dominated by cost benefits analysis uh, above all else as the mode of if not uh, decision making because obviously political decisions are still political but at least the mode of kind of narrating how decisions are taken and how decisions would like to be taken in a way that kind of depoliticizes uh, and sort of removes debate uh, from democratic Evidence, Evidence-based masturbation. <laughs> Your words, not mine. How does this relate to the suspicion of expertise that you mentioned earlier? Well, 
it's there are two things going on. Essentially, there's the kind of uh, the flight from and the flight to expertise, whereby um, judgment is being kind of removed uh, from particular professions. So, uh, judgments around, say, uh, cultural sector, uh, judgments around what you know a good uh, project might be to fund. Uh, or a good institution, uh, you know, or kind of a good program to encourage, say, young poets or whatever, that is increasingly treated with suspicion and power is removed from people who used to make those decisions, whilst at the same time another form of expertise is kind of venerated, which is the expertise of, I suppose, the kind of the economist, the accountant, and the economically informed or economically trained uh, analyst or public policy practitioner. So now, you know, the question of, well, we know this is good because it has a relationship to the Ministry of Art or because, you know, uh, one knows what British national identity is and this festival of Britain has spoken to that or whatever, that has gone and has been replaced by uh, the idea that, you know, we have a technical form of expertise that can tell us things about audience numbers, demographics, the cost of something, uh, the price that an audience might be willing to pay uh, as compared with the price that the market might provide that for, etc, etc, etc. And there are fundamental problems with both of those forms of expertise. But what's interesting is the way that one form of expertise is something the state seems much more comfortable with now, and the other form of expertise is something the state still uses, but almost denies its using. Wow. Now, I know you've also publicly been involved in research into and discussion of the governance of the BBC. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so last year I was really lucky to get a very small grant from the uh, Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is a kind of British uh, research funder, to do work uh, that would try and engage a uh, public organisation. Uh, and again, this comes up in the book, actually, um, and the BBC a really kind of fascinating organisation. Uh, and this work was basically to ask how these kinds of themes and these ideas play out with this thing called the BBC Trust, which is a very curious organisation in that it's sort of the governing board, but it's also sort of the regulator of the BBC. Yeah. It's, it's a classic British messy compromise. Uh, the BBC is regulated in lots of different ways. It's regulated by sort of the state directly in terms of funding and the Royal Charter. It's regulated uh, by this thing called Ofcom as well. There are lots of different you know, kind of uh, forms of regulation that the, uh, the BBC is subject to. But the BBC Trust is this kind of organisation that sits above the BBC and is responsible for um, helping it take decisions or helping it um, kind of understand the impact of particular decisions. The area I was very interested in was how the BBC Trust um, helps the BBC shape its major decisions such as uh, the decision to launch this thing called iPlayer, which is a kind of online streaming service, um, or the decision to launch a new uh, Gaelic uh, language television channel, and the way that these things combine uh, ideas of expertise, so the Trust has a board, uh, which is, you know, kind of... Great uh, the good. Well, but an interesting, actually, there's a sort of technocratic flavour to the great and the good. Oh, so it's, yes. it's really interesting. So its chair is a classic kind of political appointment. He was the former governor, uh, Chris Patton, former governor of Hong Kong, former chairman of the Tory party, 
uh, a former good, Conservative Party minister. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and a good, but well, he's quite a sort of left wing. Well, what was what's called a One Nation yeah, yeah. Tory, i.e., people who are genuinely conservative with a lowercase c and do not want to see class distinctions either broken down or forced to erupt by the systematisation of increased inequality between them. Yeah, and, and also with, a, I suppose, a, a classic Tory patrician concern for particular institutions' role in this as well. Um, and it was clear that the, the BBC had a, a whole legion of, of issues, particularly its relationship uh, to the Labour government over news reporting and various scandals that actually some of your other uh, odd people have talked about and know a lot more about than I do. But um, but the trust was seen to be a kind of uh, a way of dealing with the fact that the great and the good as the BBC governors weren't cutting it. And there needed to be some more sort of, yeah, I guess kind of technocratic solution to yeah. the BBC. Yeah. So the, the deputy chair of the BBC is an economist, um, you know, who writes kind of well-regarded books about um, kind of the economics of uh, sort of prosperity and growth and this kind of stuff. And, you know, is very well-regarded in the economics community and thus can, you know, have that sort of technocratic eye on and things. And her name is? Uh, Diane and she, in fact, was a participant at a symposium. Yeah, we were really lucky that uh, she agreed to. She was a very good participant, I thought. Well, I was yeah, also yeah. in attendance. I mean, she. Uh, yeah, she gave a very interesting overview of how trust functions and how it balances that kind of, you know, the good reaction of BBC uh, executives over what would be good and proper, and then, you know, the kind of audience research they do, uh, which is kind of classic quantitative, but they also use focus groups and they try and be more qualitative along with, yeah, sort of that legacy of great and the good around making decisions by, by the trust. So the, they were an example, actually, and I kind of touch on them in the book, but I'm actually writing a paper based on the symposium about what this tells us about not just cultural organisations, but again, about how uh, British kind of state institutions strike the balance between, um, I suppose, a very older model uh, of doing the right sort of thing, old boy, and then this newer model of kind of uh, social scientific ways of dealing uh, with public policy. Yeah. Well, Dave O'Brien, thank you very much for coming to the pod today. No, I hope you'll, you'll come back when you finish this next big project about the new man of British public administration. <laughs> and, and, and woman as well. And woman as well. Thanks.